Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Matt. How are you, mate? Good. How's the sound? Sounds great. Yeah, it sounds absolutely perfect. Loud and clear, crystal, crisp. The HD FaceTime audio, bro. That's it. It's the future and the future's now. I bought this mid-lockdown because I realized it was going to be a while before I was doing any face-to-face chats, and I'm not a big fan of the Zoom thing. I like the idea of seeing the person, but if there's right. a if there's a lag, it kind of it messes with you a bit, and I feel like they they can interrupt the flow. I did one with Tommy Lee, and it was a good chat, but it kept the screen kept freezing, and so it kept kind of stifling the conversation. And with phones, it's just it's the good old fashioned art of of talking, isn't it? Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad it's not a video either because um, then I have to like you know wash my hair and shit, <laughs> put on a costume, That's put it. a headband on. And obviously, it's early morning your time as well, so your day is is in many ways just starting. Um, I guess before we go any further, dude, we should just go straight into it, which we didn't foresee at all. We already had this chat locked in. Um, And 
I knew we were going to be talking about Van Halen anyway, because they're undoubtedly an important, central, influential band in your life. Yesterday, we lost Eddie, 65 years of age, to throat cancer. So if it's all right with you, dude, I'd like to start by just kind of really learning about your your connection to that band. Um, beginning right, with, let's, let's do it. Beginning with where you first discover them, where you first heard them, and, and do you remember the impression that they made on your young mind when you were first exposed to that awesome sound? I do. I, I actually remember exactly where I was, how old I was, and what I was doing. Because my brother was in a band, right? And he, <laughs> this is going to sound really crazy, but I think I was like 12. And uh, he he came, he used to live upstairs in, in the uh, top floor of the house. And he invited me up there and he showed me this white stuff, which is called cocaine. And he, she said, dude, you got to try this. It's killer. You're going to love it. I'm like, all right. He's like six years older than me. So I tried it. Like this is killer, and he goes, "Dude, you got to check out this record. I just got it. This guitar player is amazing." And he put the record on. He played Eruption for me, and I was like, "That was it, man." I mean, and I I know that Steel Panther is about joking around, having a good time, but this is my reality. I did cocaine, listened to Van Halen at twelve, and that was that was it. I knew that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? And it, it <laughs> God. And from that day on, man, there's never really been another band that's that has done what Van Halen did to me overall, in the impression that it, it had on my on my young self. I just wanted to be in Van Halen. That is wild. When you're that young and you you know you dive in on a drug that you know gives you such an intense, powerful high to be experiencing that for the first time and then to be jumping straight in with eruption as well. And Van Halen is such like cocaine music, isn't it? Like they really did put the party in heavy metal. Um, wow. Your brother sounds like quite the cat. Yeah, he's cool. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's a great dude. Thank God, you know, it wasn't during the grunge days because then it probably would have been heroin. You know, yeah. I, I, cocaine is much easier to not do than heroin. Yeah. But either way, it was a killer experience and I, I had never forgotten that. And he's all, you know, he introduced me to many bands that, that way, not always with cocaine, but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, he introduced me to Scorpions, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, and, uh, ACDC early on. And, uh, but for me, like Van Halen was the band that everyone had to live up to in my, that was my perception. It, it still is in most cases. Like I, you know, I can look back now and appreciate a lot of music that has come out during that time. But I always felt that Van Halen changed the course of every guitar player's I don't know, destination, I guess, because, you know, he introduced that whammy bar in a different way in the finger tapping. Yeah. You know, Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix did the whammy bar and that was cool. It was great. Richie Blackmore, whammy bar, great vibrato, killer guitar player. No doubt about it. Michael Shanker, no whammy bar, amazing guitar player. But Eddie Van Halen did something that um, was different with the finger tapping and the whammy bar, the effects, and the songwriting, that's what really, for me, the songwriting in 
the, the combination of the songwriting and all those other awesome talents he had together just I don't know, man. It just it just created a a bar that's pretty hard to get past for me. Yeah, I guess every band post seventy eight, if you had guitars in the band, you were taking influence from that guy. Um, did you grow up in California, Michael? I didn't. I grew up in Chicago. Right, right. I, I from uh, age I lived there until I was fourteen, and then I moved to Southern California. And uh, that was uh, in 79. So Van Halen 2 had just come out. I had that that 8-track with me at all times. And I listened to that. That record was kind of like, because uh, like, my mom and dad broke up, right? So I was alone with my mom. I was, you know, uh, in a new place in Southern California. It was a new community. So it was like out in the middle of nowhere. And... All I had was like Van Halen and Cheap Trick and Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. And Van Halen was the band that just made me want to go to the beach, especially Van Halen too. That was like, I just got introduced to going to the beach and I'm in Southern California, which is a completely different vibe and setting than Chicago. So I'm going to the beach, I'm listening to Van Halen too, and everything just starts clicking to me. There's hot chicks can standing there. I'm listening to beautiful girls. And it's just everything was just like, this is the this is my band. And they're getting so much pussy. Oh, my God. Yeah, Dance the Night Away, Bottoms Up, Beautiful Girls. Like, that is the party (laughs) record, isn't it? It's so good. Did you notice on, like, a local level around there how much of an impact they had on Los Angeles and Hollywood and on not just the music scene but, you know, culture and and just the the overall vibe of that city? Because they were big in that sense, weren't they? Oh, yeah. They they were really – they were big out of the gate. Their first record – really did really well. And then they, you know, it opened up for a bunch of bands and, and then the next time around they were doing their own shows. So that, that's a pretty, that's not easy to do. So, uh, yeah, they, they influence everybody, everybody might, you know, when you're younger, your, your world's much smaller and there was no internet back then. So it was really, really small, but in my neighborhood, my community and the people that I touched and were around, they were all influenced by Van Halen. And one way or another, I mean, New Year's Eve, 1984, we had a party based on the release of the video jump. That party was all our friends. We all got together. We got hammered and drinking, just waiting for midnight to come just to see the Van Halen video. And, you know, I've watched that video so much. I I can't explain it, but I, I watched that video. My mom looked at me and said, you know, you've watched this video like every day over and over and over again. Why? And I go, because they're the best man in the world. That's why. I studied Dave Lee Roth for years. Yeah, man. I mean, when I got to tour with you guys, and we'll get onto that in a little while, um, you know, just the stage moves and <laughs> the voice, like everything really that you do, you can trace back to him, right? Like the influence is certainly there, and you obviously wear it very openly on your sleeve. Yeah, I don't. I don't care. I, you know, I, I, there was a point in my singing career where I thought, oh, I shouldn't do that. But you know, I, everybody has their influence and interprets it a different way when it comes out of your mouth. So, yeah, for me, you know, I I can listen to Van Halen and go, I don't sound exactly like David Lee Roth, and but there are some things that I'm just like, I'm going to do this scream because I think it's bitching. <laughs> so I've always thought they were killer, and I always wanted to learn how to do them, and and now I'm going to do them. But I also you know, there's another guy, Ian Gillen, that influenced the hell out of me. That guy screams 
like Roth has a different scream than Ian Gillen. Ian Gillen's scream is, is, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but it's just completely different than, um, than David Lee Roth. So that, that mixture of those two singers together and the writing, the melodies and the, the melodies and the verses and stuff, Ian Gillen and, and David Lee Roth, they kind of, uh, both are major influences, but I would say, you know, the Van Halen thing, like you were saying, cocaine and Van Halen go together. Well, they're also Eddie, Eddie is the first dude and Michael Anthony that when you watch the band for myself, I'd watch them and they were smiling all the time. Yeah. You know, they're always showing their teeth, smiling, opening their mouth and just like they were having fun. And Dave is cracking jokes and they're fucking taking the piss out of people. It was just the best. How many times did you see them live back in the day? Well, the first time I saw Van Halen live was at the Us Festival in 1983. Oh, wow. The big famous one. No, that's not the first time. I'm sorry. First time I saw him was for um, Fair Warning, which was in 82 or 81. I'm I'm sorry. I'm confused. I haven't thought about it in a while. I think it's 81. And uh, it was their fourth record. And I went and saw him at a place called the LA Sports Arena, which they don't do shows there anymore. But I was 15, and it was the best show I've ever been to. There was the influence that David Lee Roth and Van Halen had on dudes. I mean, they were all... People were wearing like leather coats. They had long hair like Dave. And then you had the guitar players wearing the Eddie shirts and stuff. And it was, uh, it was quite an experience. And it went by really quick. And I didn't do any drugs or drink a thing. I mean, I got dropped off by my friend's parents. We went into the, to the show, watched the show, came out. They picked us up. We went home. And, but it was the, it went by so quick. And it was the best show I think I've ever seen in my life. And they're the band, are they single-handedly, really, that made you want to do this for your life, full-time, forever? Yeah. Yes, sir. You know, the thing about uh, back then, I didn't really get a glimpse of those guys unless they were in a magazine or they did a news spot. So it was hard to find footage of them. You know, I never really, the only footage I would have were videos that they released. So they released, a live video of them from Oakland. I think I sent that one or requested. Uh, you asked me like you were reminiscing yesterday and you said, Hey man, can you recommend any videos? Yeah. And that's the video from Oakland that I watched. It was like a promo video for the release of that record of the first show I went to. And, and I just looking at the way they looked on stage and the way the stage is set up. Um, that was something that I studied. <laughs> Do you know what Absolutely. I noticed as well is he just he has the the bottle of Jack casually in his hand. I don't know if he was the first person to do that. Obviously, you know, bands like Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue would would popularize that as well. But was David perhaps the first? Because you just see him on stage just with the bottle in his hand, like taking swigs, just having yeah. a good time. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was so cool. And, and, you know, when you're young, you're more impressionable. So, of course, well, at least. You know, another thing too you have to remember, it's back in a time when there was no internet. Yep. So, you know, I, I don't, my only experience is my, you know, four mile radius of where I live, right? So, you know, seeing him, to me, that was the first guy who'd ever done that. He was like the coolest dude at the party. And he's getting laid, he's got pussy, and he's got killer songs and a killer guitar player. And he can jump and he's ripped. Uh, physically and it's just like wow this guy's the shit you know and yeah 
drinking a bottle of Jack. That was always, uh, that was a cool, like added stage element. And you know, you don't know this when you're younger, but it's a show. He's, this is a show. He's doing that every single night. But when I saw him, that night was my night. Yeah. And he was just doing it for that night. But that's not how show business works. So, <laughs> But it was still cool. I loved it. Well, I was reading as well. And I think maybe one of you guys, perhaps even you, had told me this because we were joking around about the whole brown M&M thing. And uh, yeah. and they basically were the band. Am I right in thinking this? They kind of invented the whole rider concept, and and on their riders they would put we want all the M and M's, but we want the brown taken out. And the reason they did that, I was reading, and I think you told me this, was because they wanted to make sure that the rider had been read fully and properly, because there was important you know technical and safety requirement stuff in there. And then they knew if they saw the brown M&Ms had been taken out of the M&M bowl, then that the, the rider the rider had been read and everything was done and they were safe and ready to rock. Like, that's great. That's so killer. Yeah. I mean, I, from, from what I understand, I don't know any other band that's done that. I think that Guns N' Roses has a pretty cool one. They put hookers and blow on their rider, <laughs> which is real. It's fucking real, right? And... You know, if they ended up with that, they knew that they went through the rider, right? <laughs> but, you know, most of the riders are ridiculous. And, you know, back then, you were lucky to get, you know, drinks and water and beers. That was, like, a big deal. So they just they just really embellished that when they started blowing up. And that, I think it was, I don't know, when I was younger, I was like, they're the coolest man in the world. Who would make anyone do that? Well, Van Halen can get it done. And they're getting, oh, God, dude. Well, listen, man, so before Steel Panther, even before Metal Shop, uh, the band you were in was called Atomic Punk, right? And that was a, a Van Halen, David Lee Roth era tribute band. And is that where you first met Russ? Is that where you guys first started playing together? Uh, I, no, I've known, I, know, I have known Russ for a long time because like, we got together in the early 80s and tried to get a deal and it didn't really well later in the 80s it didn't just we couldn't get signed because grunge had come out so you know he went his way and i went my way and we just started like doing different bands i was in a band called ellie guns for a couple years and you know he played with rob halford and then i had other original projects i tried to to do and it just didn't work out and is that all because of grunge just because literally all the executives were chasing a different thing with the advent of that and it, in their eyes it was like oh this kind of music's not commercial anymore we're not signing any bands like this that's exactly what it was yeah and it happened well it happened like over it felt like overnight but it, it happened really rapidly you know uh it wasn't cool to wear spandex anymore and it really wasn't cool like i would go on a plane and people would go, what's up, Bon Jovi? You know, but they were making fun of me because yeah. I had like long, blonde, curly hair and wearing a jean coat and jeans and boots and shit. And they're like, what's up, Bon Jovi? I'm like, okay, dude, whatever. I love Bon Jovi. Fuck you. <laughs> um, well, I love it as well. What, yeah. what a testament to your, I mean, because how many people would have changed their style, both musical and fashion? in the advent of grunge and then obviously punk rock, which came later on, you know, with Green Day and those kind of bands. Like, you loved it that much that you just stayed the course. You were like, I'm staying true to this no matter what, even if it's the most unfashionable thing in the world. Yeah, I, I really just couldn't see myself doing anything else. I really, I didn't, I liked some of the grunge. I liked it, but I just didn't like the the vibe about it. 
because that's just not who I am. I'm not like that. I'm not, you know, sure, I have days where I'm down and days where I'm up, all, all that kind of regular, normal human stuff. But I'm not a depressive guy. And I, when I get on stage, I want to make people smile and laugh and have fun. So that whole thing of like looking at being a shoegazer and staring at my shoes and being bummed out was nothing for me. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, so we started, I started with this other guy and this other guitar player, a Van Halen tribute band called Atomic Punks. And we started playing all over and we started getting paid to play, which is something that's very hard to do. And as you know, and we started getting paid and playing and we started building up a following and people started coming and we were playing all up and down California. And then David Lee Roth decided to go out on tour and a solo thing. And he was looking for a guitar player and he came to him and his sister came to our show in Pasadena no way. and, and plucked our guitar player and took him out on the road. And we went and toured with him for a couple of years. That's so wild. When he, isn't it wild? Yeah. So when he left, <laughs> we got this other guy. His name was Brian Young, really amazing guitar player. And we started playing and we started building up our following and even more and more. And it started like expanding to like uh, the Midwest. And, and then Dave got rid of that first guitar player and wanted to go back and do this tour with Sam and Dave. It's called the Sam and Dave tour. Sammy Hagar and David Lee Roth. Yep. And he came back and he went back to one of our shows, saw our new guitar player. No. Him. <laughs> I swear to God, dude. Did you ever meet him went, when he was nicking all your musicians? Yes, I met him. <laughs> what, yes. what, did, did you say, like, what's going on, dude? You keep taking all my guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I guess we're the farm team, huh? I, I, I don't know. He's like, well, so you guys can pick them good, man. <laughs> so you're like the training squad, and he's just coming in and poaching them for the big league, like it seems. Unbelievable. Exactly. So I was, I always envisioned myself being plucked like that too, and being in Van Halen. Did you ever, thought, did you ever seriously like try out or anything? Did that ever become like yeah. an almost possibility? I, no, I never tried out. Um, I think that uh, at the time when that was happening, when Gary Sharon was like Sammy Hagar was in it, and that was solid, and I was too young for that anyway. But yeah. then when Sammy left and Gary was before Gary Sharon was hired for the band. I uh, was like, I got, I was living in, uh, you know, Hollywood. And I was like, I got to meet. And I, I literally still to this day, well, I live about two miles away from Eddie, the late Eddie Van Halen, right? And I've always lived in this area. And I just, I just thought, God, this, I got to somehow get my stuff to him and I have no idea how to do it because I just don't I don't know anybody in circle and I'm at the store which is like a station it's called Staples I don't know if you I know Staples know it is, it's it's, like the guitar okay. the guitar center one right uh, no Staples out here is, is kind of like a um, office stuff so oh. like for printers and chairs and pens and paper and all that kind of shit is it not the one by, it, by guitar center on Sunset though there is one by guitar center yes sir Yep. There you go. So anyways, I'm I'm in there shopping for office stuff and I'm checking out and Wolfgang and Eddie are in the checkout and I'm like, Oh my God, this is my chance. Like I need to go tell him what's up. And, uh, and I'm like right behind him. I go, Hey, how you doing, man? Big fan. He's like, I know your band. 
I'm like, you do? He goes, yeah, Tom and Punk. I know your band. You guys are pretty good. <laughs> and then that was it. And I was like, oh my God, Eddie Van Halen just talked to me. Holy shit. But I didn't say anything. I was like tongue tied. I didn't know what to say. Like, I'm a singer. Can I be in your band? I didn't know what to say. <laughs> so that was your shot. I guess in that situation, yep. you have to be pretty cocky and confident to go for it, exactly. don't you? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I was just like, I don't know, man. <laughs> so anyways, fucking, he took, uh, Dave took Brian, and then Russ was done with uh, Rob Halford, and it just, like, he he actually got in the band while Brian was in the band and was playing bass. Really? I don't know if you ever know this, but. No, no. Yeah, Russ was like, hey, you guys need a bass player, because our other bass player got signed and went on tour with Stevie Nicks, and he, uh, we're like, oh, we need a bass player. And Russ like, I'll play bass. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, dude. It'll be a great challenge. So he learned all the stuff and played bass for like six months. And then Brian went to David Lee Roth and he went to guitar. We got another bass player. And 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 then we did it for a while. Yeah, you did it until, from uh, what, like 94 to 2008? Is that right? Yeah. Fuck, yep. so 14 years, man. That's a long time. I know, right? Man, I think I played... I played a lot of Van Halen in my life because <laughs> I've been playing you really, the song you really got me in every single atomic punk show. And you know, we're not, we weren't a touring band. We were a weekend Thursday through Sunday band. So we would play as many shows as we could every month and we never took a break. And, uh, so man, I played, you really got me. And we played, you really got me a lot of times in uh, steel Panther as well. So man, I played that song so many times. Now, you at that point were calling yourself uh, David Lee Ralph, right? That was your stage name. When did the... Yeah, I, I, I didn't call myself that. You didn't? People, people called me that. Right. I would never, like, come up with a name for myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? That just sounds so pretentious to go, oh, yeah, I'm David Lee Ralph. <laughs> so that was more like an affectionate nickname that people on the scene were giving you? Well, kind of. It was kind of a uh, kind of a backhanded comp- compliment in a way because like there was a guy in a band called the Bullet Boys right. and he completely did like David Lee Roth. That was he was a big fan like I was, and he dressed exactly like him, and he did the poses and all the grandeur stuff just like David Lee Roth, and and they and he was he was Latino, and people would just call him David Lee Rodriguez because. Right. He was looking up. So then, oh, David Lee Rodriguez. No, you're David Lee Ralph. So I like, oh, fuck. I guess I am David Lee Ralph. But that was cool. I was happy to do be that anyways because it was – I really enjoyed doing that, and it was a really great way for me to, to circumvent all the grunge static that was going on around me and just commune with people that loved the same shit I loved. Because, you know, people that come, came to our shows to see the Atomic Punks loved Van Halen. So we had that style of music and that band in common. And it was really just, it was a great way to insulate myself from all that other shit that was going on and how the music was changing. Was there a lot of partying going on around that time when you were in that band? Were you living that side of it? Like you say, it's kind of a weekend project. So did you almost kind of go you know, a hundred miles an hour from Thursday through to Sunday and then crash back down. No, I, I, I couldn't with that band. Cause we had, we had so many commitments. We had to really like 
and there's like there's nobody there's no road manager there's no no uh wardrobe person there's no roadies there's nothing yeah we're doing it all on our own and setting up everything i'm doing the set list adjusting the lights you know getting the front of house mix going on with a the guy that you get for free from the venue so there's not not really too much time to to do that and then after the show we're packing up all our shit putting it in the van and going to the next show so it was it was a uh, it was not too much of a party it was just like we were out to to be the best tribute band out there and kick everyone's ass really was that your sole income was that all you were doing in terms of you know get getting money were you were you working a job as well or was that it well, I started, have, I had a job and I worked at a couple of record labels. I worked at Capitol Records for a long time and I worked at Virgin Records because I wanted to be close to that yeah. and figure out the work, how it works. Because I, I didn't know, you know, so I got jobs there and that's how I supplemented my hobby, which was singing. And once we put the Atomic Punks together, I was able to start getting paid and slowly but surely the gigs built up. And I quit my job and the rest was history. And that was back in 94 or 95. Amazing. Well, how do you meet the other two then? How do you meet Darren and Travis? When do they come into the scene? Well, okay. So I got the bass player in our Atomic Punk band. His name is Joe Lester. And by the way, he is our, he works with the band on the, uh, behind the scenes now. Yeah. With the Steel Panther. And, uh, he was, he started doing this. He got hired by this agency and they had a bunch of variety bands. So they had like a jazz band, a disco band, um, a funk band, all these kinds of bands. And they had a bunch of musicians within their pool. So they would book gigs and just assign random dudes to the gig. Right. And so he goes, you should audition for him because it's a great way to make some extra money during the week when we're not doing atomic punks. All right. So I auditioned for him and he put me in a disco band. I'm like, Oh God. All right. Whatever. One of the, one of the disco bands was making, you know, like one guy was making like $250,000 a year. So wow. I thought, Holy shit. I, I'm yeah, I'm going to do this. Right. So I started out on the lower tier disco band, you know, making some money or whatever. And, and it was cool. So I was doing the disco thing during the week and I tell him on the weekends. And the the guy, the agent that worked at the place said, hey, I'm thinking about putting a heavy metal band together to do some shows. Are you interested in singing for it? And I was like, are you kidding me? What kind of, what songs are we doing? Was, you know, like Van Halen, Def Leppard, Motley Crue. I'm like, dude, I'm in. I'm your guy. Yeah. I'm your, I'm your guy. I'm the only guy in the whole musician pool that this is just, this is my job. Yeah. I'm going to get this job. And uh, he goes, I think we should call it Metal Shop. And I go, that's cool. That sounds great. And he goes, I got this other guy, Russ. I go, I know Russ. Yeah, of course. That would be he's perfect. And he goes, this other guy, Travis. And and uh, at the time, it was this other guy named Ray Luzier. Oh, yeah. So he's in corn and, now, right? Yes. Or was in corn. Is and, he in corn still? Yeah. Yeah, he's still in corn. And Ray was my drummer in the disco band. That's wild. So. Yeah, so we started doing shows together, and that's that's how we all how we all met, and and Ray went and played with David Lee Roth. 
with <laughs> our first atomic punk guitar player. <laughs> Another know, one poached. <laughs> Another one poached. And we're like, fuck, we need a drummer. <laughs> so we ended up we ended up getting Darren because Darren was in an original band with Satchel. And uh, so that's how we started out. And uh, that's how we all met. And that's how it just started. So we, we started doing Monday nights at the Viper Room. And that, I was that's doing where it begins, on... is it? That that venue is kind of the the home. Yeah, we started out in Vegas. We had a weekly show that about 20 people showed up every week, and then we got fired. Yeah. And then we reignited it at the Viper Room on Mondays. So I was doing Monday nights at the Viper Room. Wednesdays and Thursdays, I had a disco show. And then Fridays and Saturdays, I was doing the Atomic Funk. And that was my tour schedule. And we did that for probably about eight years every week. I think it's really interesting because, you know, when you look at the early bands in rock and roll, the Beatles, the Stones, bands like that, they were obviously doing a similar thing. You know, they were either playing two sets a night or three sets a night, or they were playing every night of the week. And they were doing a lot of covers so that you're ingraining this musical DNA into your brain. And I think when you go through that process, like you really understand the ins and the outs of songwriting, of performing, and you just live and breathe this music. And I feel like that's really... You know, not to be like the old guy going, ah, rock's in a kind of difficult place at the moment, but I feel like bands just don't know that world anymore. That's not their reality. Well, it's been that way for years. I mean, there's bands that, you know, they they write songs and wherever they're rehearsing and they make a demo and they get signed and then they go on a tour and they learn how to play in front of people. Yeah. For us, we had already had so many years of performing in front of audiences that liked us or hated us or loved us that we were pretty well seasoned with performing. So when we got signed and went on tour for our first Steel Panther record, we were fucking, we were ready. And even though we were super nervous and freaked out and scared when we went on stage, we had so much of that ingrained in us, like you're saying, that we were able to maintain ourselves and and put on a a good show and play good. Because I think what's really important that bands forget is you have to be able to play like you did on your record and sing like you did on your record. That's what to me stands out the most for a band having talent. You know, if you hear a record and then you go see them play and they, they don't sound anything like the record, I feel like it's just, Oh, that sucks. Well, you know, I saw firsthand and, you know, I want to say before we go any further, dude, um, just thank you so much for not only taking me out on tour a couple of years ago, but just, the way you guys treated me, I've toured with so many different types of bands, whether they be like punk, heavy metal, hip hop. And by far and away, you guys just gave me complete free reign of your stage. And I really appreciated that. Like you just let me go to town and do my thing and entertain the crowds. And a few of the other tours that I've done in the past, you know, they'll either keep my volume really low or, you know, say, say just stay in that little space at the back of the stage there. Whereas you guys just literally could not have been more generous and accommodating. And I had such a fun run with you on that. It was amazing. Yeah. Thank, I, you're welcome. And uh, thanks for that compliment. And that means a lot. You know, bands that have pyro, I understand you can't have people on stage. Yeah. But I just, you know, there's some bands that just, they close their stage off. That's just the way it is for them, and I get it. For us, we like to keep it open because I feel like, I don't know, 
the, the beginning of the show is just as important as the main act, in my opinion. I mean, people want to be entertained. They want to not only see us, but they want to be entertained. So if you can like make the ticket be great from doors till the end, that's a great experience for fucking everybody. And plus it's, I don't know, I like the camaraderie of having a team on tour. It's fun. Amen to that. Well, it was the perfect storm as well because the Queen movie had just come out, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. And I was finishing every every of my set with with Bohemian Rhapsody because I was dressed dressed as Wayne as well. And I remember the first night it was in Dublin. I think was the first show we played, and the whole room was like doing the mama. And I just heard you over. I guess it would have been um, God. I can't remember the name of your guitar. What was your guitar tech's name? Oh, back then, yeah, God, I don't remember. I well, I heard you over like the in ears that he had on, just going, "Matt's killing it, he's killing it," and I just heard how excited <laughs> you guys were, like in the wings, you know, ready to come out and crush. And I was like, "That's what it's all about." Like the band who are topping that bill want to come out when the audience is like ready to explode, right? And then you just come out, and then the roof gets blown off the thing, and you're off. Yeah, that's the fun part. It really is. There's nothing worse than you know going out there and being bummed out. I want to go out and have fun. And the crowd is like ready to rock. And you know, Dublin, dude, that was like, I think that was the first time we had played Dublin. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And it went really well. Remember it was sold out and we, I think we went back there and did two shows. Yeah. Those two nights sold out. And this was, again, there was like, people at the front of the room were blowing up condoms. I've never seen this before. And, you know, tying them into balloons. So by the time you guys came out, the stage was just littered with all of these condom balloons. It was incredible. But I wanted to say, dude, like every night watching you on that tour, I just was blown away by the musicianship. And like, I know you guys mess around in terms of the in-between song banter that you have, but it became very apparent to me on that tour how deadly seriously you are as performers and as musicians and as craftsmen. Like it was such a tight, well-oiled, finely tuned machine. And I, I have to commend just the the level of professionalism and, and thought that went into the show. And it was just executed to perfection every night. And it was such a masterclass to watch every night. And I loved it, man. I really gained like a whole new appreciation for what you guys do as a band on that tour. Thanks. That's really nice to hear. Yeah, we really do take it serious. We take it so serious that it enables us to not be serious. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what what I mean by that is it gives us the we don't I don't have to think about stuff. I just can go out and just enjoy myself because I've you know it. I don't know, man. I think that people really know when you're phoning it in, and people know, you know, even if you're playing not good, the band's not tight. I think that people may not know what's wrong, but they just can feel it. And I feel like, you know, it's just people pay money to see us and it's got to be great. I'm not saying we're great every night because, you know, obviously some nights are great. Some nights aren't as good as the other night, but we do the best we can to try and be fucking great. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Well, you were great every night on that tour, and I'm not just saying that to be nice. It was it was an amazing, amazing fun time. So for you guys, I mean, you know, you'd obviously been going a while before you get signed and put out the first album. Was there a major turning point when you felt like you know, your success had arrived or was it very much like a, a long, slow, gradual, organic build? It was just the, la- the latter, a long, organic build. We got signed, but prior to being signed, we were doing the cover stuff and all the bands that we were doing, the Thomas Punks and Metal Shop, the disco thing kind of faded away and those, the two the counterpunks and metal shop started building like a lot. And, you know, once we changed the name to metal school and got rid of the agent and just took it, took it back to ourselves and started booking it ourselves that really took off. And we were uh, having lots of success in Las Vegas, uh, Hollywood and San Diego. And then we'd have other bookings, uh, other places. And it was, it was, a great time for us. It was like the, uh, the eighties on the strip again. And we brought, we brought that back to the strip on a Monday night. And we were so, we felt like we really accomplished something because the whole, when we first started at the Viper room, we would always say, we are here to bring heavy metal back because grunge fucking sucks. And we're like, yeah, we love metal. And we're like, we're fucking bringing heavy metal back. And then after the show, we were only booked on one Monday. And after the show, Russ goes, we'll see you here. We're going to be here every Monday forever. And the club owner was like, I don't know about that, but we'll try it. Yeah, come back next week. And then it just, we kept doing it. And we felt like at that point, we had brought heavy metal back to the world on the Sunset Strip and in Vegas. And we were just beside ourselves. And then to get signed, we were doing so well where we're at. Getting signed was like, eh, well, do we want to do that? Because then we're going to be signing to a major label and they're going to take all our money and it's going to be weird. What, what's going to, we, we didn't really know what that meant. But, you know, in my mind, I thought, well, God, it'd be great to be on the radio, be on MTV. I can imagine if we sold, had a platinum record, how amazing that would, I mean, we got to do it. So we, we all decided that we we're going to sign and we signed and, and we started doing it. And 
Then we had a level of success that we've never experienced before. And we had to make a really big decision. And the decision was this, do we quit all the other bands we're doing focus just on steel Panther and not play those weekly gigs anymore. And we all decided at that point, we're going to do that because we want to tour the world and we want to do it. And so we had a different level of uh, success in that area. And it was, it was great. But you know, the funny thing about metal, it always gets knocked down some way. Like you were saying, oh, I don't want to be the old guy that says metal's having a hard time, but it always has. You know, it came out and then Firehouse kind of killed it, which is a band that went too pop for metal. And, you know, we just keep getting kicked. I mean, like we finally did a video and MTV said they wouldn't play our video. Uh, we had a, the record label, you know, send all the radio guys out to get our stuff on the air. They wouldn't play any of our music. Um, record sales weren't, we we sold a lot of records for our first record, but it wouldn't go platinum because all the everyone was downloading for free at that time, and everyone still does it. And then, so we never had that experience of doing that, but we had the experience of going to the download festival, playing the small tent, and it being packed with thirty five, four thousand people, which was unheard of apparently, and. Uh, and then our success just kind of took off from there. Yeah, I think there's a very special relationship between your band and the UK, isn't there? We seem to yeah. have taken you into our hearts. <laughs> yeah, it's been like, uh, I remember our, our, the president of the label was got signed by a company called Universal Republic. And the, the guy who signed his name is Monty Lippman. And he championed us. He was He was such a great dude. He like... It was his idea to have Death All But Metal be the first single. It was his idea to do the video for it and the way we did it. And he let us put whatever songs we wanted to put on the record and any lyrics we wanted to put on the record. And then he just put it out. He let us design the cover, everything. And he told us in a meeting, he said, look, if you guys don't go to Europe right away and clip your weekly gigs, they're, they're, gonna, they're not going to like you. You have to go prove to them that you care about them. Like, really? What? I didn't even know what that meant. And I'm like, well, whatever. Okay, we'll do it. And then we're like, okay, well, who's going to pay us while we're out there? And, and he said, well, you're not getting paid. I'm like, well, how are we supposed to pay our bills and shit? He goes, I don't know. It's called an investment, I guess. So we had to quit our weekly gigs and take the money that we were saved and made from our weekly gigs and invest it into our band and go to Europe and do that. And the UK took us in and it just felt like the biggest achievement we had ever accomplished. That's amazing, man. I think when you're presented with that opportunity, even if it's daunting and, and you kind of think if I do do this, I could lose everything. I think you have to go for it, right? There can't be a fallback yeah. option. You got to just go, yes. this is it. This yep. is my time. And it worked out. It I mean, when do the celebrities start coming to your shows? And let's talk about, I mean, real quickly, Corey Taylor is on that track, Death to Orbit Metal, that you mentioned there, the first yeah. single. How does he come into the fold? And I remember uh, when he, you, you brought him out he, a download with his wellies and his Motley Crue yeah. hoodie, and he sang with you there. That was amazing. And you guys were like, Corey Feldman's backstage. We're going to bring him out. <laughs> How did you meet Corey? How did he come to be on that record? Well, he used to come to our shows at the Viper Room when we first started. 
He'd come all the time. He'd get up and sing Poison. And I, I really, you know, Slipknot was a metal band, but they were like a darker metal band. I really didn't really know. I've heard some of their music on the radio, but I really wasn't familiar with what they what they look like because they wear masks. So uh, we get word that, hey, the singer from Slipknot's here. He wants to get up and sing. We're like, all right, cool. He got up and at that time he had long, long, frizzy orange hair and he would sing Poison. And I thought, he's singing Poison? I thought he was in Slipknot. You know, why would he be singing Poison? The fluffiest band of metal, right? <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, that's, and it's so funny. I, I remember I was, we were leaving the Viper Room and I was watching this video like two months ago because we're in quarantine, there's nothing else to do. So I'm looking at all these old videos and I'm videotaping my chick and behind her, and I'm out in front of the Viper Room and behind her walking out of the Viper Room is Corey Taylor and his bass player. And they're fucking hammered. And they're going, fuck yeah. Oh, he's with Steve-O. I don't know if you know who Steve-O is. Of course, yeah. Steve-O was the first ever guest on this podcast. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. So him and Steve-O are walking out after our show. At the Viper Room, like, they're all fucked up. And, <laughs> and oh, God, dude. Well, Steve-O was yeah, in another so one of your videos, wasn't he? He was in a more recent one. Maybe the party, like, Tomorrow's the End of the World. Was he in that one? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. He's, he's been around. He's been coming tour shows for years too all the guys all, all the jackass dudes that was like um matter of fact the guy who um produced our first tv show was the producers of jackass but uh yeah they used to come all the time and and uh it kind of just started happening people would just show up like the oddest celebrities would show up like christine aguilera would show up she used to be sitting there <laughs> and I, you know, I don't, I, at that time I was like about 37 or six and I don't know who the fuck she is. I'm not a pop guy. I, I don't give a fuck about her. Right. But she was hot. So I was like, who's that hot chick? Hot oh, Christine Aguilera. I'm like, Oh, right on. Can she sing? And she wouldn't get up on and sing, but you know, like Paris Hilton would come to the show with all her stupid chicks, which is cool <laughs> because she's hot and she draws. Right. And Keanu Reeves would come all the time, and his band would open up for us. Um, the guys from the there was a TV show called That Seventy Show that was really hot back then. And yeah, yeah. All the cat, a lot of the cast would come there to the show, and that was the Viper Room. Stephen Tyler came to the Viper Room. Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley would come a lot. The guys, you know, Scott Ian. Um, God, the list goes on. AFI. That's how I. I don't know if you know this, but I sing on. A couple AFI records. Yeah, I was and, reading that. I was like, ah, that had slipped me by until till I read it today. That's wild. Do you know what's oh, funny? Really? Is, yeah, I, re- I was reading about it. I was like, it's, there's two records that you did that are kind of two of the records that I like, you know, the most yeah, by them as well. The story of Tenacious D is kind of similar, Michael. I don't know if you know those guys, Jack and Kyle, but they basically they used to come too. Did that? Well, they kind of used to do the same thing. From what I gather, I spoke to Kyle on the podcast a few years back, and he said their night was Sunday. They did like a month of Sundays kind of thing, but it was the same deal. Yeah. They play at the Viper Room every week, and then as time went on and word got out. All of these crazy celebrities, actors, comedians, rock stars, they'd all start turning up to the shows. I guess the difference being with yours, you'd actually get people up on stage as well, which I love. Yeah. Yeah, because we were doing covers. So it was easy for people to get up and sing something that was familiar to them. And also they would get a chance to like reminisce about the the 80s and it was a nostalgic thing. And uh, it was it was really cool. And the combination of them playing and us playing 
And there's another band that did uh, 80s New Wave covers. They played another venue on, I think it was, uh, I forget what day, Tuesday or whatever, uh, in Hollywood. So that just started making the strip, you know, start to percolate again. It was really cool, man. And it was essentially so just down just to you guys. Coming. Like, you guys, you can say, like, you were pretty much the dudes that kick-started that. Because at that point in time, as you say, it had gone away, it had gone to grunge, it had gone to punk. And you guys kind of yeah. helped bring it back. That's killer. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? We're going to do a... I'm, this is going to be a shameful plug, but it's a really good time to do it. Plug away, man. We're doing, we're doing a Halloween show broadcasted uh, through the internet. And we're doing it at the Viper Room. Oh wow! And we haven't pl- we haven't played there since we were Jam Prancer. We did like a private show there as a band called Jam Prancer. And we, I mean, the last time we played there as Steel Panther was never because we've never played there as Steel Panther. So this would be the first time. Where does the Get co- your tickets now, <laughs> dude? Well, I'll link it up in the episode. I'm going to put this up tomorrow as well. I'm going to get it straight up just off the back of the Eddie news. But I mean, that there's a couple more things I'd love to pick your brain about, like the list of people who got up and played with you. I'd love to hear some more of those. Um, you know, whether they're comedians or actors or whoever was around, like any huge names or just funny moments that stand out. There's so many funny moments. It's hard to like pinpoint them all. I, you know, I seem to get re- I seem to get reminded of things that have happened by different friends that I've talked to that I just kind of forget about because we did it every week. So it was. Um, but the ones that stand out to me are the ones that you hear about because they're they're widely publicized. But you know, Jessica Simpson coming to the show, hammered and getting up and singing was really fun for me because back then to me she was smoking hot and fun and she was hammered and she was having a killer time and and also at the time her boyfriend was this guy named Tony Romo who was a quarterback for the NFL and uh, he was super famous at the time and I'm a big NFL fan I really enjoyed that sport so uh, that was really a big deal for, for me a lot of the NFL guys would come to our show and that really was a big deal for me and, you know, for people that are live in the States, the NFL is, you know, obviously as popular as football for you guys, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we had a lot of the, the famous quarterbacks that are still playing till this day come to our shows, and that, that was really exciting. But, you know, we, we have a lot of comedians that come. Uh, God, I'm his name is – it will come back to me. Drew Carey. I don't know if you know who that is. I know Drew Carey. I know Drew Carey. He used, he used to date my friend um, who sadly passed away earlier this year. But yeah, I met, uh, I met him when, yeah. when, when he was with Amy because um, Amy was a pal of mine. So yeah, I met up with him at the Rainbow, actually. Uh, amazing. And he, he seemed like a really sweet dude. You were on his show as well really early on, right? Yeah, we were on a show. We did the, we did the theme song for a show. And then um, he also has introduced us to introduce us and opened our show every time we we opened up a new venue in Hollywood or Vegas. Amazing. So when we when we went, he would introduce us at the Viper Room just just for fun, which was killer because you know people were excited. Oh my God, Drew Carey's here! He'd tell a couple jokes and introduce us, and then we moved from the Viper Room to the Roxy. And the opening night, he came in, introduced us, and then we moved from the Roxy to this other venue, which held 
way more people called the Key Club. He introduced us there. And then we moved from the Key Club to the House of Blues, and he introduced us there. And then same thing with Vegas. All the venue changes we did, he would fly out and introduce us. And it was just uh, that, that guy, man. And he, you know, he brought a lot of famous people too as well. Um, but Quentin Tarantino coming to a show was amazing to me. He Fuck was sitting yeah. there with, uh, oh my God, I, I don't know why I always forget this guy's name. <laughs> Jeez, I can't, I can't remember it. But Quentin was there and he would bring, he likes pussy. So he would bring <laughs> a lot of chicks with him. And then we get a lot of chicks from the Playboy Mansion that would come to the show and always a bunch of strippers. And back then we, we would bring, we'd have a stripper pole on stage for <laughs> of course anyone you did. who wanted to get on stage and dance. Right. <laughs> and it was great. We get two girls at a time. And it was fucking, Oh, such a good time. Well, I remember one time Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson came to our show and I pull up in the back of the, of the venue and Tommy's out there. He's like, Hey dude, what's up? I go, hey, what's up Tommy? He's like, Hey man, I, Pamela's here. And we got, she's got this like Christmas outfit and it was in December, obviously. And she's like, he's like, uh, you know, I want to get up. Maybe we could play girls, 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 and she could dance on the pole. And I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> fuck yeah, she can. I was, fuck, it was the best night ever. I mean, she got up. He's playing girls, girls, girls. I'm a big Motley Crue fan. Tommy Lee's playing with us. It's not the first time he had played with us, but it was still really fun because they were back together and she was with them. And I was like, oh, my God. And I was staring at her and I was just watching her. I'm like, oh my God, she's so hot. And I was like watching her dance. And then I look over because the, the drums got a little quieter and I look over and he's staring at me like, what the fuck are you looking at, man? <laughs> <laughs> like, Sorry, bro. Sorry, man. And then Satchel's like dropping his like guitar pick and having to pick it up and looking under her skirt and shit. Tommy's getting all pissed. It was great. Well, what I love about you guys is I can imagine nobody's off limits and I just love the confidence and the cheekiness with that. I can imagine whoever was at the show, whoever was in the crowd, you know, even if it's one of your heroes, you're still going to have fun with them and kind of take the piss out of them and, and, and just do what you do. And that must be a very, it is freeing. It, It takes the pressure off of everything. Yeah. You know, one time we're, we're on stage and we just had the drummer from rack it up and play with us. And I look over, Tommy Lee's in the audience with some chicks. And I'm like, Tommy, come on stage, man. And jam. We love you. How many people like Motley Crue? And the whole crowd's like, yeah, we love Motley Crue. And he fucking wouldn't get on stage. I think he was really fucked up. And he just like, and, but we just kept going on and on. And he didn't want to get up and play because he knew his limit. Kind of like Vinnie Paul. Vinnie Paul used to do that. He would never get on stage with us. And he just like, he just left. And I felt bad because I realized that he was fucked up and he didn't want to play, but we kept, you know, Satchel, (laughs) as you know, you've toured with us. Yeah. He's very relentless. He doesn't give up and he'll fucking beat a dead horse until it's fucking dead. (laughs) Anyways, I don't think, I don't think that ever helped our relationship with Tommy. So, no, I mean, well, what's what's been going on with you and Nikki over the Nothing. internet? He, <laughs> he moved. He moved, and he's not he's not in the rock scene at this moment. He's just being a dad. <laughs> Everything's fine. He's it's, it's, it's all a, good. Yeah, this was before. Remember, they were going to go out and do that big tour, and we yeah. were on tour, and whatever. 
it's just silly stuff that really it it was like I have to be honest with you, I like to be talked about like that. I don't I don't want to be called an asshole, but it's nice to be acknowledged by a guy that influenced my musical career. I mean Motley Crue was a big influence too as well. Yeah, I saw you guys for the first time on the big tour that you did in the UK with them and Mo- um, De- Def Leppard. Def Leppard, Motley Crue, you yeah. guys. That was great. I'll, I'll never forget being in Wembley, being backstage down the hallway, and I'm standing there with Joe Elliott and Nikki Six, And we're just talking, and Joe Elliott says, man, I got a great idea for a song for you guys. I'm like, oh my God, Joe Elliott's telling me ideas for songs. This is fucking great. Nikki's like, come here, come on, Justin, let's talk. And we sit down and we talk and we exchange numbers and I give him our CD because that's how I am. You know, you remember that moment I missed with Eddie Van Halen? Never again. I say anything? Never again. Yeah. I told myself, no matter how it feels, I don't, I don't care. Because if you don't put yourself out there, no one will know. So I walk CDs into everybody and I, you know, and I'm walking around with Feel of Steel. Oh no, it was balls out. I'm like, here's our CD. And he's like, oh, thanks, man. And then I walked into Vince's room and I go, hey, Vince. He had two girls in there. I was like, God damn, he's such a rock star. I go, here's my our CD. He's like, oh, hey, man, thanks, man. And um, Mick Mars, when he opened up his dressing room door, he had a bunch of like skeletons and shit hanging in there. And it was like black lights. And it was really strange. What an and amazing moment to be on stage as well and be able to sing Wear a Def Leppard, Wear a Motley Crew. And they're like, yeah. fuck, on the bill with us. Like, that has got to be one of those moments which you'll just treasure forever. What a beautiful, just when all the stars align moment. Yeah, that's great, man. It's so, it's crazy how that happened. It's, I, I can't imagine that it would ever happen. And it happened. And, uh, you know, you asked, what, what did you feel the success happening? And it's just been different levels every every time like that for me was a different level of success like we achieved something where's Def Leppard where's Motley Crue oh they're they're coming on after us that's where they're at and they're backstage and we're on stage with it it was great that's a beautiful moment man how was working on that movie I know you're in it only a brief scene um but Mark Wahlberg and Jennifer Aniston how were they to work with were they nice to you was it a cool set was it a nice experience that yeah it it was Yes, it was really cool. I, I didn't realize, you know, I, I wasn't really into the show Friends, but I sat down in the makeup department to get my makeup done or whatever because they sent me there. And I'm sitting next to this chick, and I think she's kind of hot, and she's talking on the phone, and she's like, I love you. All right, yeah, well, I'm just getting my makeup done. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, honey, bye, I love you. And I turned to her, I go, hey, nice to meet you. She's like, hi, I'm Jennifer. I'm like, cool. And I just get my, keep getting my makeup done, and then I think to myself holy shit that's jennifer aniston and she was just talking to brad pitt holy fuck <laughs> and that was a cool moment for me because you know i like i like famous people too so I'm like damn but the, the experience was really cool hanging out with zach wilde jeff tilson uh jason bottom i mean it was a star-studded event and you know that day that i shot we did that a shoot for like I think it was three days we did that scene and uh, the main characters in the cast were at that particular shoot for that scene because it was a, a moment where everyone was there so I was hanging out with Mark and Jennifer and all the guys in the band and it was really cool man and it's it's so crazy to think that 
uh, you know, the singer from, oh my God, Alter Bridge, right? He's in the movie, right? Miles Kennedy, is he? Yes. He wow. plays, Wild. he takes over for Mark Wahlberg. He gets, comes out of the audience and takes over for Mark Wahlberg. So he's in it. And, you know, years later, we're managed by the same management company. We're both in the same movie. I become friends with, with Jeff Pilson and I, Zach and, and, uh, I was just going through an old file cabinet and I found the call sheet for that movie and all their names are on there. So I remember who was there and, and also, uh, the movie was called Metal Gods back then. Right, they right. changed it to Rockstar. How about that? I did a tour earlier this year with, with Zach Sabbath, with Zach's Sabbath tribute bands. Um, and again, just a great, great experience. What a beautiful guy he is. Just again, another He's cool. gregarious, generous. Even though he doesn't drink anymore, he still likes to kind of be around that atmosphere, it seems. Like, you know, kind of shoot the shit and tell stories. And he's just that kind of dude, man. A very sociable guy. Loves the road life. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's always been a big fan. He's jammed with Atomic Punks a lot, hanging out. He, I remember when he he got up at the whiskey, jammed with us, and then he goes, you got to come to my house. I'm like, for what, dude? Got to hear my new record. All right, I'm, I'm down. Let's go. So uh, Satchel and I went over to his house, and he played his record so loud that I was like, oh, my God, I, I don't think I can listen to it. It's so loud, and I didn't want to tell him to turn it down. I didn't want him to fucking kick my ass. And I'm not kidding, because he was like, you know, I didn't want to insult him. But he was so fucking loud. He's a big dude, isn't he? Yeah, he's a big dude. He's but rich. he was drinking back then, so it was a little different. Yeah, he was a bit unpredictable, was he, then, in those days? <laughs> yes, he was really unpredictable. When when did you cut out the alcohol and, and cocaine and other things from your life, mate? Oh, uh, let's see. Back in 92, I thought... Man, if I keep doing blow like I'm doing blow right now, it's gonna fuck up my voice. Because I would like wake up and, and try to sing. I was like, oh, this this is not working. So I just said, I I gotta fucking chill on that, you know. But don't get me wrong, I revisited those countries again, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. But you know, it's just something that you know I realized in my life that if I keep going down the path I'm going, I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do. And what I want to do is rock. So it's ironic, but it's just the way it is. You know, you just can't keep going on because eventually it catches up to you and kills you. Well, it's very clear as well with the things that you write about and sing about, even if you're not doing them every night now, it's kind of, you know, you can see the authenticity that once upon a time that was what was going on. Do you know what I mean? Like you can see that you have lived it. You're not just faking it. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, how you're saying Zach likes to be around that environment. Yeah. It's the same for me. I still, I'm still the same dude, and I still like the same shit. And you know, I think one thing that is really important about our band is that it, the authenticity is really important, and people can tell if you're full of shit. And I, you know, people ask, "Where do you get the inspiration for your songs?" You know, and the truth is, they are life experiences, and they're have a twist on them because they are, they can be kind of funny when you look back at them, but they're all real. I mean, I would probably say the only one that's not real is gang bang the old folks home. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I mean, that's a story, but for the most part, you know, they're all taken from like shit that we've gone through 
and of course they're embellished you know but they, they well, that, are... that's comedy though isn't it that's what all stand-up comedians do is they take real things in their life and situations and scenarios that have happened but they amplify and exaggerate for comedic effect yes exactly i mean that's that's what writing's all about that's why i feel like the influence of van halen for me has been intrinsic in the sense that it's come through me and comes out a different way and you know there there definitely are similarities and but I feel like, um, you know, that's my job is to carry the torch, man. Keep Van Halen alive. Well, dude, you're doing it. And I want to ask you just a couple more things before we, we say goodbye. And it's been it's been really nice catching up with you, man. It's been really nice. Likewise. Um, you've obviously had a few brilliant, well, one diss track in particular, which stands out. Obviously, your biggest single, Death to All But Metal. But obviously, you've name-checked a lot of real-life people in your music. Has any of it ever come back to bite you in the face? You know, whether that's from the M&Ms of this world or the Papa Roaches or the Blink-182s. Uh, any of those people that you name check in your songs been in touch over the years and expressed a disliking towards your band or, or the song or, or conversely, has there been anybody that's reached out and said, I love what you did there. Amazing work. Well, uh, yes. And I have a few stories about death album metal. So first of all, Goo uh, the singer didn't dig it. The rest of the guys thought it was fucking hilarious. They were so stoked be a part of it and they talked about it in some interview i remember somebody sending it to me and they they really just they just have a sense of humor and uh but the singer wasn't keen I, he was not yeah, that was not cool for him he didn't do that <laughs> uh blink 182 thought it was fucking hilarious they loved it and those guys just come to our shows all the time all the time too and at the viper room and then uh jacoby from papa roach um, you know, I, I don't, didn't really know him and we just put him in the song because of the way they dress. Right. Yeah. And at, back then they were like rap metal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that wasn't metal enough for us. Right. So, and they cut their hair. So, uh, I'm, this is, I think death album metal had been out maybe a year or whatever. And I'm walking into a Starbucks and here comes Jacoby coming out of the Starbucks and he's with like a posse. I'm like, Oh, this is awkward, man. And he goes, hey, what's up, dude? I go, hey, what's up, Scully? How are you, man? He goes, I'm good, bro. And uh, we, like, hung out and talked. And I go, and I, I go, dude, are you bummed about that? He goes, fuck no, dude. I'm stoked you guys mentioned us. More press for us. <laughs> and I'm like, right on, dude. And, I, and you know, to this day, we're friends. And we, we talk a lot. And he's, uh, he's great, man. Such a good dude. I love it. What about the rap guys? I mean, for me, I would have loved nope. I would have loved Eminem to have heard that and then name checked you in like a diss track of his own because he's obviously no stranger to that world. That would have been so good. Nobody's done any Madonna. So basically just the bands that you were friends with who enjoyed it, they've they've let you know they enjoyed it. But other than that, there hasn't been any hate mail. <laughs> you know, I, I would think that fifty cent maybe do something. And even Kanye, you know, we did that little uh, song about Kanye and it went viral and like no one said a word I don't think anybody they really, nobody cares they don't feel affected by anything so it doesn't really matter I don't know what it is but we haven't had any um, problems even you know with our stage stuff I mean we have one bad review from some uh, journalist in Los Angeles that did came to our show and thought we were 
just the worst band ever. She's like, this band is so stupid. They think they're rock stars and they can get have sex with all these young girls and they're just pathetic. And I can't, she's actually believed everything that we were doing. <laughs> like she just thought like, oh my God, these guys are stupid. And then obviously she doesn't like metal. So that other than that, we've never really had anybody. I mean, we did have a song banned in Germany. Which one? It was called Critter. Yeah, yeah. Off Balls Out. And this song, yeah, Off Balls Out, That's that song, they banned the whole record. So we couldn't sell it there and we couldn't play it. And then we challenged it and we found out it was because of the one song. So we made an agreement with them that we would never play that song in Germany. We went to Germany on that tour at the uh, Oberhausen venue and it was chaos. Those, yep. du- those dudes like climbing up the walls and jumping from the balconies. Like that was a really, really Larry show, that one. There wasn't many shows that I got to go, go out into the front and watch from the crowd because they were all so, you know, packed out. But that one, because it, it was yeah. such a big venue, you could get out and move around. So I went out and watched you guys from the front of that one. And I can tell you, man, the crowds in Germany love you guys. They were loose. Although you don't know if the humor's landing because they just kind of look at you, don't they, with these straight faces like... <laughs> But they're rocking to the songs. Yeah. Hey, you know that's what that's one of those things where the training of playing every week to an LA audience prepared us for Germany. Because yeah. LA is the same way, and New York, they just kind of look at you like, "All right, impress me," because there's there's so many celebrities in LA everywhere. So it's just like, oh, oh let me see what you got." <laughs> so we were ready for Germany. Does the the age of cancel culture? that we're in now concern you because you look at you know so many comedians and musicians and artists and creatives who are traditionally outspoken and and controversial god forbid you see so many people now like baiting for blood online the pc police you know who just want they want to wipe out anything that doesn't fit in their perfect cookie cutter worldview uh obviously you you guys that that particular we put out a pedal called the Pussy Melter a couple of years ago. Yep. And the reason we put the pedal out is because somebody, we had a, uh, we were selling a plugin for, on this website for a sound that Satchel had created called the Pussy Melter. And somebody, some social justice warrior found it and started the petition and said that it was offensive and we should take it down right now. And so the company that, was selling it took it down and we were just like are you kidding me you're taking that down i mean it's not even a whatever so we just said you know what we'll just put out our own pedal and we did and it sold we sold like three five no thirty five hundred pedals after we were like banned from having the it's called a tone print you know we had the they had to take it down and and we just put out the pedal ourselves and it sold really well. And that's the only experience that we had. So I, I'm not necessarily concerned about that because I mean, man, we're, we're, we're banned. It doesn't seem like enough people care to like take stabs at us and have us quit or whatever. And what could they do? Tell us never to play again, I guess. Well, I I was speaking to Doug Stanhope about it, and he raised a really interesting point. He said, and I think you guys are in a similar boat, it's like the only people who who can fire 
comedians like him and, and you know bands and musicians like you guys is your own audience if they decide they no longer want to come to the shows then then you're fucked but as long as people who are in your fan base and appreciate what you do still want to come out and be entertained in that way then you're fine and i really like that because i think a lot of musicians and comedians and creatives nowadays pander too readily to that audience and you know people will demand an apology for something and they'll just come out and apologize for it when i think well you should stand your ground a bit more and and just actually say no i'm not going to apologize like fuck off <laughs> yeah that's that's the cool thing about you we're kind of like our own bosses but then we're not our bosses are our fans yeah you know so if they don't cover the show like you're saying we don't have a show so people still come as you see you tour with us you know so we're good. They can't fire us. No one can fire us. <laughs> Fuck everybody. <laughs> How were the drive-in shows? How were they? They were really cool. They were like, uh, when you go to a football game here, uh, well, let me just say this. When you go to an NFL game in the States, outside in the parking lot, people party before the game. And I'm sure they do that at soccer or football matches or whatever. But they, uh, it's called the tailgate party. So basically what happened was we went and set up, they set up a big stage for us. We played right next to the screen. They had cameras on us and they would project the show on the screen and people could just sit on their, you know, their cars and drink beers and watch us. So it was like a really big tailgate party with a huge screen so people could see us. And it kind of looked like a festival in, in my opinion. Like if you go look back, you know, you at a festival, you can't really see the stage if you're really far away but you can see the big the video screen, right? Yeah. It was kind of the same same thing. So it felt a little weird not to be able to be so close to people, but um, it was it was great. It was a cool experience. And I think it, we're doing some more, too, at the end of the month. Nice. As a matter of fact, we're doing one on the 16th in Detroit, Michigan. Well, as we approach the, the end then, my friend, why don't you just tell us a little bit about this Halloween show that's coming up, and then um, then we can say goodbye. Well, we decided to do a monthly show at the Viper Room. Oh, wow. It's going to be uh, monthly yeah. until things return. Gonna, that's killer. Yeah, I think it's going to be monthly. Um, that's what the plan is. I don't know if we're going to roll it out that way. But right now, we're just, right now it's just um, we're promoting the Halloween show. And that's going to be, you know, we were thinking that a lot of people can't go trick-or-treating. They can't go out to the parties they're used to going to. So we're going to bring the party to your house. That's what we're doing. You know, it's really hard to accommodate different time zones. So the happiest one we could find is 2 p.m. So it should work out pretty good for the U.K., not so good for Australia. And not really that great for America, but it's the only way to get everyone involved. So we're going to bring little steel panther heavy metal to you and we'll probably have some special guests too as well but i'm not gonna tell you who it is because we don't know who's confirmed yet <laughs> hey why don't you do a like a kind of system where people can watch the show live but then it's available for up to 48 hours afterwards so then that way they can see it even if they can't see it like at the exact moment that it goes out live if that makes sense yeah that's a good idea um I think that we did that with people that bought tickets. You could watch it for up to 48 hours after the show. There you go. So if you buy a ticket, you'll be able to watch it. But I would just encourage people to go to steelpantherrocks.com and read all the fine print. There's 
couple paragraphs to read, and it will give you all the information you need about the, the live stream. There we go. Well, what a great life, hey? And I know things are on pause at the moment in many regards, but I'm sure we'll be back out there soon enough. And it's just amazing. I love the story of your band and of your life and journey, and it's been nice to get into it. And, you know, we've obviously been doing interviews for years, and often they're a bit more, you know, kind of funny and, you know, silly. But this was just nice to actually yeah. have, like, a real talk, man, and, and, and get into it and, and chat about your history. And what, what a crazy ride. You know what it's like? It's like us backstage just talking, like normal, normal human beings. Have yourself an awesome week, my friends. And, uh, yeah, don't be a stranger. And until next time. I would give you the stars in the sky, but they're too far away. If you are a hooker, you'd know I'd be happy to pay. If suddenly you were a guy, I'd be suddenly gay. Cause my heart belongs to you. My love is pure and true. My heart belongs to you. But my cock is communal. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.